Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1121, with guests Mads Christensen, Lee Brandt, Josh Broton, and Robert Bodekheimer. Recorded Friday, March 20th, 2015. It's .NET Rocks! Awesome. Can you believe this is their second year? They've already got 40,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) You guys sound big. I think they call it the fifth year, but they keep moving around, so I think it's always a little bit different each time. But i got to say, this space is amazing. It is. And this space is so new, Google Maps said, I have no idea. Yeah, like clearly they saved an old wall because the back wall of the space we're in it says uh, built 1931. So, okay, so the space itself isn't. Some of the space is new. Yeah, the wall's old. The ceiling's new. Hopefully, (laughs) (laughs) this stuff looks new. Yeah, that doesn't look like 31. I'm pointing to some large modern-looking stuff. Anyway, let's uh, get busy. We have a great panel. We have a great show for you. But let's get things rolling with uh, Better Know a Framework. Awesome. Roll the music. All right, buddy, what do we got? Well, I uh, did a class yesterday on Xamarin Forms. Went How great. did that go? Oh, it was great. Yeah? Yeah, it was, it was awesome. We had a, a, and one of, the, uh, one of the guys, Dwayne, in the class showed me a new way to do the iNotify property changed plumbing code. Oh, yeah. That's even better than the stuff that I was showing. Nice. It comes down to one attribute on really? a property. And the match attribute is magic. <laughs> is it literally called magic? It's magic. It's kind of magic. So go to kindofmagic.codeplex.com. It's an MS build task. And if you look at the code here, I'm, I'm showing Richard the code. Your typical code looks like this, but look at that. Just one attribute that says magic. Magic. Public string name get set. And you're done. That's hilarious. You like that? Yeah, and it's open source. How many people are using it? And uh, clap, because it's a radio show. How many people are using it? <laughs> oh, just a few. That's a few, but more of you not. More of you not. So you if go. you're a .NET developer, uh, that is going to be magic for you. Kind of magic. Kindofmagic.codeplex.com. That's cool. I can't wait to start using it. It's really neat. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1107, the one we did with one Mads Christensen when yeah. we were talking about ASP.net. And Luke Watson says this. He says, hey, guys, when I was listening to Mads talk about how the community helps drive Web Essentials and how those features get pushed into Visual Studio, he said that they take those features out of Web Essentials. My question is about the point of no return. Is there a point where features stop getting community updates? They get flagged as, quote, perfect. Perfect? I think it's more done, but okay. And then, they, and then they get taken into studio, or do they just get integrated based on popularity? In the back of my mind, there was a fear that without the community updates and feedback, those features would become locked down in Visual Studio. Uh, what if someone has great feedback after it gets moved across? As the community focuses on the new Visual Studio, 
is there any way we can actually be as agile as it is in Web Essentials? Because there is, you know, mm -hmm. a way to communicate with the studio team as well. I mean, we've got Mads right here. I bet he has an opinion or a thought around <laughs> that. I do, yes. Uh, well, so generally, when we move features from Web Essentials and into Visual Studio, it happens uh, after the feature has matured, and sometimes that takes years. And so there has been a lot of churn, there has been a lot of feedback already, and usually we never move anything in that isn't sort of baked, that isn't done, that hasn't been matured, basically. And um, so, but I understand the concern, but you can always reach out so that we have a lot of different uh, channels for giving feedback, and mm -hmm. we do listen to all of them. And so if there is a feature that started in Web Essentials that now comes into, you know, full VS, um, you know, use of voice, Twitter is a good one. Um, yep. We have the, the feedback, the inside Visual Studio, the little send a smiley or whatever. Uh, we also listen to all that stuff. Uh, and then the connect bug. So if there's anything there, there's plenty of stuff to do. And again, you can also open a bug on the Web Essentials GitHub issue tracker. Obviously, I'm going to look at that too. Right. So, um, I mean, and that, I think that's exactly what Luke was saying. Could, could I keep sending stuff into the Web Essentials channel and with the chance that it would be fed back to Studio? People do that. And, okay. And so there is a user voice on Web Essentials as well where we, we look for that. So a great example of, of how sort of this happens is, so we have, we have support coming out for React.js, right? You can write JSX files in Visual Studio. That's coming out in the new release uh, in the, or in the next uh, release of Visual Studio 2015. And... Um, that came from the Web Essentials user voice. Wow. You will not find any requests for that feature on uservoice.visualstudio.com. It's all Web Essentials. Hmm. But it matters as much as the other one. And that's why we're now um, doing that. And it's not a small thing to do. It's actually a very large feature to write. Yeah. So, um, but it came from Web Essentials, right? Even though it's not, it didn't start its life in Web Essentials. It just came from the feedback channels for Web Essentials. Well, I also wonder how this is going to be changed when you talk about ASP.NET vNext anyway, and everything's in GitHub, and it's really easy to mark a bug or a concern on anything inside of ASP.NET. Yeah, that's sort of the same thing. Um, again, we take the feedback everywhere. It doesn't matter if the feedback is coming in on the ASP.NET GitHub issue tracker, or it comes in from Twitter, like straight to me or Damien or David Fowler or who it might be, right? Or from use of it, I mean, the same channels. We all get the 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 feedback from those channels. We actually have a tool that collects all that. So we we have sort of a dashboard, and we get feedback from every all of those channels actually in one place. Nice. So yeah, so the Visual Studio team has been really good at they're really all that up. treated equally. Yes. Well, Luke, there's your answer, man. Like, it's, they're all treated equally. However you want to talk to Microsoft, they're listening the same way. So thanks so much for your comment. That was a great thank you, Mads. I couldn't have answered it near as well as you could have. Uh, so, Luke, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have over, well, they have thousands of professional developer, IT admin, and creative you're just courses. Running, running, you've lost track of the number, haven't you? It's they, just well, too big. The thing is, is this ad was written, you know, last week. Right. And so <laughs> the number is probably too small. It grows constantly. They have thousands and thousands of courses authored by MVPs, industry experts, and .NET Rocks guests. Uh, quite frankly, they release new courses daily and offer a 10-day free trial, giving 200 minutes of access. So try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, I would like to let our esteemed panel introduce themselves, starting with you, Lee. My name is Lee Brandt. Um, I work uh, out of Kansas City for a company called Page Labs. 
Um, and I write code, mostly. Um, I write codes for clients, mostly in JavaScript, um, some .NET code, and uh, I do training as well. You also run a great conference, sir. Yeah, I yep. run uh, KCDC in Kansas City. Um, we had 1,100 people last year. I'm looking forward to about 1,500 people this year. Wow, big numbers. Um, yeah, so it's, it's grown immensely just in the last five or six years. So I've been writing software for about 20 years, and uh, hopefully I'll get to write it for about 20 more. Yeah, good. Mads? Yep. I'm Mads Christensen, and I'm a web developer since the late 90s. And uh, for the last four and a half years, I've been building uh, the web tooling parts of Visual Studio up at uh, the Mothership in Redmond and continue to build websites. So I'm very much still a web developer, but I also sit on the other side on the building the tools that hopefully all of you are using to build websites. Thank you, sir. Josh. Uh, my name is Josh Broughton. I'm the lead developer at the world's best infographic company in Sioux Falls, South Dakota called Lemonly. Um, we do interactive infographics, high-performance node applications, and uh, WordPress sites. And then I also do, uh, I run a conference called Prestige, which happens two to three times a year around the country um, that focuses on running digital businesses and careers. Awesome. Robert. Robert Boningheimer. I work for Schwann Shared Services. So we have, we own Tony's Freshetta. Red Baron Pizza. I work full-time on an e-commerce site. I'm a plural site author, so I've got some Fiddler courses, web performance, cryptography, things like that. So, Fantastic. We've got uh, quite a great representation of the mobile web development and web development. Uh, uh, where, where shall we start? The state of web development. What is the state of web development? Well, I think Microsoft has successfully fragmented the market by ditching system.web, leaving a whole bunch of features behind, and we should spend the next hour beating up Mads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's. Am funny. I overstating the? I mean, I, I did it completely hyperbolically, like, but it is not entirely untrue. You have made a decision to leave some things behind. Uh, well, we've made a decision to build the best server-side web development framework in the world. And that means that we have legacy things that will no longer be carried forward. Right. You have to realize that ASP.NET in its current form today is 15 years old. And when it was first created, like before .NET 1.0, like when it was first created 15 years back, it actually had compatibility with ASP Classic. Like you had the application right. object, request, response, those sort of things. And there was a lot that there was a whole compatibility layer there that has been carried forward because we have to be backwards compatible. ASP.NET 5 is sort of our way to say, okay, if we were to build the best possible framework today with everything we've learned from the past 15 years, as well as everything we've learned from all the other frameworks out there, what would that look like? And that is ASP.NET 5. And this isn't a problem, or this isn't, backward compatibility seems to be a thing at Microsoft. I mean, you guys always have to look backwards when going forwards. And, you know, sometimes that means innovation happens slower than everybody else would want, but you're, you're keeping everybody happy. But it seems like this time around, not just with ASP.NET, but with Windows as well, and, you know, new web browsers and things like that, it sort of is a line in the sand saying, okay, we're, we're starting over here. Yes, that, it could seem like that, but there's difference between backwards compatibility from like a pure technical point of view, and then what we call concept compatibility. So, for instance, if you're building an ASP.NET MVC app today, and you're like everything there, like the way we do routing and session and all these sort of things, 
those concepts are carried over into the new world as well. So we, we do what we call concept compatibility. Like the actual runtime, everything that makes your app work is different from a technical point of view, the way it's implemented. But the concepts are the same. We still use attributes. We still use um, routing and session and all these different sort of things. So it is not going to be a brand new world. If you're already doing MVC and you want to move up to ASP.NET 5, it's not going to be a, a foreign new thing. It's going to very much be what you're used to, and you're going to be able to pick it up very quickly. There are going to be new concepts. Right? Web config is no longer a main concept for running the app. Um, so there are changes, right? but it's not, they're not that big from a concept point of view. So you said we're going to leave some things, in air quotes, behind. I mean, that some things list includes VBNet. Can you talk about that? Um, so I, I actually, I'm not entirely sure why that was, but I think it's because that we don't see a lot of VB.NET developers uh, embracing the latest uh, technologies like MVC5 and so on. So we, we kind of know the distribution of how many people use VB versus C-sharp for ASP.NET projects. And we see for each version of Visual Studio coming out, for each new version of ASP.NET framework coming out, we see the VB version being, uh, VB usage being lower and lower. That could be the reason, but I'm, I'm not sure. Now, do you see that because anytime uh, a developer uses Visual Studio and starts, creates a new project, you actually phone home and say, oh, they're using VB to create an MVC project or C-sharp or... Yep, that's pretty much it. So you know how um, when you install Visual Studio, you get this little balloon tip asking, do you want to help improve Visual Studio? Yeah. Like the percentage of people that click that, that means that we get anonymous information about usage. So maybe VB programmers just don't like to click that box. That could be it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In which case, that sucks for them. Any uh, web form developers still on the paddle? Yeah. Still doing web forms. Robert? Where does, where does that sit you, as a web, you know, with maintaining web formats, considering this is one of the things that gets left behind? Well, the things that I like that I've seen is we still have a path going forward with 4.6. So um, probably about 10 years ago, we actually took our entire mainframe. So every app we had on our mainframe, uh, we rewrote it in web forms. So in my company, for me, it's going to be reality for a long time that I'm going to have a lot of web forms apps. But at least I've got a path forward with those. Uh, I can still run those. And then I can innovate with vNext on the new things that I'm going to be working on. So I think that gives me kind of the best of both. And so if we're making major changes to something, then I can turn around and you know, gut it, redo it in vNext. But I keep to everything else running, because I don't want to rewrite all that stuff again. So. And just a side note here, I actually still build a lot of stuff in web forms. I mean, it's, it's all about the right tool for the job. Sometimes I can get away with a, doing a simple web form with a lot less code much faster, much more performant, out of the box, 10 minutes, than if I were to do web pages or MVC or static website with, like, let's say, AngularJS. Uh, Webforms definitely still has its place. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of Webforms. And they have pulled. I mean, they, a lot of the features that I want, they've pulled in from MVC as well. So I can take advantage of routing, so I get extensionless URLs. So a lot of that model binding and stuff has been moving into Webforms as well, so you can take advantage of it there. Do your customers talk to you about you know, oh, what's, what's happening with ASP.NET? Should we be worried? Should we be dancing? Do they, do they bring their, what do they bring to you in terms of uh, questions? Yeah, so I, I guess I do a lot of conference speaking. And I just literally, yesterday a guy came and asked me this question. He said, which one would you use? Which one makes sense for you? And we kind of walked through the same process. Um, 
just because in his case as well, he had a lot of legacy web forms that he's gonna keep around. So he was having that debate of, do I really wanna train people on two different things? Uh, and that's what we run into as well. So how, how, many, how much investment do we wanna put in uh, keeping people up to date on the two things? We've been primarily, we were an early adopter of uh, .NET, so we literally were using the beta of 1.0, and that's what we wrote our e-commerce site in. So we've been doing it for a long time. Um, but that's the kind of questions that get a lot of people asking, is there a future for that? Should I stop doing that? Should I do MVC? Uh, from our perspective on our e-commerce site, we solved most of the major things people don't like about web forms. I mean, we did server-side view state. In fact, the day we launched, we launched our site with .NET in 1.0, we started seeing the view state complaints and ended up having to gut the infrastructure and write it to do server-side. So we've done all of those things already. Um, we structured things really well, so we have a facade layer of classes and stuff. Uh, we use a service layer that gets unit tested. So a lot of the issues people had that would drive them into MVC, uh, we already had solved. So we don't run into a lot of that. So and we're not opposed to using any of the new. We just, you know, like I said, we've got a big legacy. And he, like Mad says, he used what works. Any other guys have uh, customer concerns? Lee? My, I guess my biggest concern would be from a business standpoint. Um, I mean, how many web developers... Um, especially Microsoft web developers out there right now would uh, take would return a recruiter's phone call if they said, "Hey, I have a web forms job open for you." How many would clap hands? That's the sound of no hands <laughs> clapping right there. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, the enthusiasm is overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, um, the library part of this is getting really interesting. I mean, I deliberately picked a panelist that talked about jQuery and another one that said, you don't need jQuery. Yeah. And, and we already mentioned Angular as well. Mm -hmm. Where do you guys see this going? Like, Josh, I think you're the anti-jQuery guy. Uh, in, all f in all fairness, I'm not anti-jQuery. I'm anti the guy who puts jQuery on the page to add a class to an element. Like, yeah. that's, that's what I'm anti. Um, I'm a real big believer in using the right libraries and the right tools to to do the job. The problem is, is that we abuse them, right? Like we, we, we take it to another level just because it's easier. Like, you, like, the, like jQuery selector dot add class is easy for us because it's what we know, but it, it, in new JavaScript world, right? It's document dot query selector all the same selector dot class list dot add, and that's it, right? So it's, it's basically the same thing. We just don't know that. We just use what we know. Right. right. And the end result is you're not uh, cluttering up the browser with all sorts of libraries and adding complexity and things. Right. And we, like, it, it's not a huge deal for desktop users, but because mobile is becoming a big deal, it's a big deal for them, right? So for like an older Android device, it takes a full second to request download and then run jQuery before it starts being used. Right, which uh, any, anybody who has, works on a marketing team or at an agency, especially e-commerce, will, will, will scream at one second of execution time to dot add class. And so that, that's why I'm against it. Well, and I had a friend mention to me the other day, um, and I never thought about it this way, but it's actually irresponsible to bring in a library if you don't need it. Um, because yeah. of the mobile story, people are watching their data. Right? And so if they're having to download all of jQuery so that someone can add a class to it, that's irresponsible on your behalf, making them spend their data just to download a, a jQuery, a big jQuery library when you don't need it. Yeah, that's yeah. money. Yeah. Well said. 
Yeah, so as the guy giving a jQuery talk in a half hour, also, <laughs> I'll weigh in as well. So I agree entirely, don't use it when you don't need it. Right, um, absolutely. We've been using it for a long time, so when we started, it was because of cross-browser issues. I mean, it was a real pain. I didn't want to write client-side JavaScript because it was painful, I mean, working with all the different browsers. Uh, what we've really gotten into now that I think is uh, the primary reason we still use it is all the plugins. I mean, I don't want to write a lot of client-side JavaScript to do things that I can find excellent plugins for online. So that's really what we And arguably shorter it. plugins, too, smaller yeah. than what you would have written by hand. Right. So like for our, on our website, we used to use paging for all of our categories, and our designer said, well, we want to show all the products. And I said, well, that's great. I'm the performance guy. Mm -hmm. That's going to suck. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went out and found a guy who had a lazy load plugin for my images. So as I'm scrolling down, I can add some simple attributes and one line of code and as they roll down. So only the people that are actually scrolling and bothering to do that are downloading all these images. So right. that's why I stick with jQuery. I agree with you. Anything I can do in core JavaScript, I will. But using the plugins for that kind of stuff just makes it really simple to do client-side stuff. Well, the compatibility issue is still an issue. What browser are you guys cutting off at today? Lee? I'm probably cutting off at IE8. That's probably my lowest common denominator. It's not HTML5, right? Like, that's, that's a tough cutoff point. Well, no, and there's a lot of good polyfills to get the HTML5 things that I need. Right. So uh, for the most part, I can get there. I'd prefer not, to not have to support anything below IE10. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, being an e-commerce site, we have to support everything. Uh, but we're actually rewriting it to be responsive. When you responsive. say everything, are you still including IE6? No. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm saying in the past, that's So everything what, that matters. Is yeah, everything that matters. So, but oh. now we're redoing it. We're actually drawing the line at 10. At so 10? So we're going to do IE10 and above. Wow. Josh? Um, we do IE 10 and above for just out of the box for everything that we make. Um, if a client's willing to pay for it, obviously, we go 9 or 8. Uh, we won't go below 8. But we prefer No 10. amount of money is worth it. No, there, <laughs> I would quit my job, and I love my job, but IE 7 support is a nightmare. But we do it because we cut it off there because Flexbox makes layouts so awesome and easy. And to have to go back to trying to do what we do in Flexbox to be backwards compatible with IE9 is so difficult that um, it's not something that a normal client wants to pay for out of the box, especially when um, most of our clients, when they look at their, their analytics, right, they're, they're mostly B2C customers like Marriott and 9-11 Memorial and, and companies like that. And so they, they see 97% of their users not being in IE9. Okay, so the, and that was my next question then is, when I ask a customer what browsers you want to support, the customer says, all of them. But then you have to set a number around that. I don't, you, I mean, you, you've made them actually go get the metrics to show the proof. Right. Rather than just the easy answer of yeah. all of them. Right. And as soon as you start talking dollars, right, you're yeah. like, that last 3% is going to cost you 20%. Yeah, they're like or double, double, right? They're like, okay, we'll 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 put a little warning at the top that says they're in an unsupported browser, and they'll get the mobile layout, right? Like that's right. that's that's, that's how they work. And I think that's how we approach it too. I mean, we've wanted to run everywhere, but we're at the point where we want to use CSS three, want to use HTML five. I call it a tax. You know, when I talk to the business unit, I'll say it's a certain amount of tax, ten, fifteen, twenty percent, whatever it is, to support IE eight for one point five percent of your customers. Is that really worth it? Well, Robert, you do a lot of de developments internal to your organization, yes. too. Yes. So are you actually getting your IT guys to push later browsers we out? We are now, yeah. Because I mean, you, <laughs> and is it because you've accounted for it? 
Well, at, at this point, so we've been running primarily still IE8 internally. Right. Uh, we're actually pushing the redesign of our website is one of the main drivers for why we're pushing and we're putting IE11 everywhere. Mm -hmm. and it's Plus, we're getting a lot moment. of third parties. I mean, we have a lot of third party sites that we use internally still that just don't support older browsers anymore. So right. we're getting pushed from that angle too. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all, I get that devs want to move forward and it all makes sense, but boy, moving an IT org can be really challenging. The only thing I've ever made sense is showing how much it's going to cost. Right, yeah, and that's, I mean, just talking about it, and we ask which browsers you want to support, we get what you said, well, we want to run everywhere. But it's literally the, the calling it a tax. Putting a dollar amount to this new redesign is going to cost you X amount more or take this much longer to get uh, deployed. Can you talk about those numbers? How much more time, how much more cost? I don't have a specific, so as we went into the redesign for the one that we're doing, that's mm -hmm. what we had asked. We were working with a third-party firm for the design, and we said, try to give me a number, because I don't work with, you know, you work with a lot of different clients. You have more exposure to what that percentage is. I don't, but I have a feeling it's got to be in the probably 25%. To have to support all the polyfills and do everything else I'd need to do and what it would limit me for design. You know, I've used Modernizer, I can do fallbacks, I can do all that kind of detection, but all that stuff is just extra work that isn't adding business value for that. It's code you're writing for a small number of users right. and in the enterprise, it's a set number of users you could control. Right, exactly. Yep. So getting back to this whole uh, being irresponsible, loading up jQuery and all that stuff, if you're trying to minimize the amount of data that's flowing down to the browser, do you shy away from all frameworks? Do you measure how much time it takes? Do you write your own sort of wrappers with plain old vanilla JavaScript? And, and if you do, uh, do that. Are you, I mean, I know it's not the same playing field as it was a few years ago where it was all about DOM compatibility and everything. That seems to have largely taken care of itself, but what are, what are some of the, the things that you do in that, you know, with your own plain JavaScript to alleviate that problem? I think for a lot of cases, um, you have to basically, for every website you build, you have to think hard about what the features are that you're going to build and whether or not they actually warrant a specific library. And so there's a lot of cases where we want to do uh, progressive enhancement. So we want to target sort of a baseline, maybe old mobile um, uh, clients. And then we want to add progressive enhancement on top of that CSS animation, some JavaScript uh, fun, and maybe some Ajax calls to make sort of the navigation more fluent or whatever it might be. And so it could be a gut reaction say, okay, I need Angular because I'm going to do something with page transitions or whatever. And maybe any, all you need might be just a, to do an Ajax call, right? And you... And then Ajax2 then need to do jQuery. Well, no, right? That was probably the case like some years ago when there was browser compatibility issues, but yeah. they don't really exist anymore. If you're like IE8+, plus, you're good, right? You might not need jQuery for, for at least for, for some of the basic stuff. And so um, just always look at what you're building and don't include any framework that can be done with, let's say, 10 lines of code. With, if the consequence is that you're going to add like 50K download of Angular, jQuery, or whatever it might be, right? Because that is irresponsible. Not everyone is on a 20 megabit line on a big monitor and so on. Yeah, and uh, I mean, for my C2, we use probably 15 different uh, jQuery plugins on our site, plus jQuery. I bundled all of my JavaScript files into one. Uh, we use compression, we use expirations. Your first page visit, you're going to have to get that combined file. I think combined, compressed, it's probably about 60-ish K. 
Uh, I have images a lot bigger than that. I mean, I can't get marketing to cut their image size down. I'm mm -hmm. not losing a lot of sleep over having all of my JavaScript for all these plugins downloaded once and then they get to keep it basically cached. So. But the difference is, depending on what you're doing, your images are not blocking rendering, but your JavaScript download might be. Yeah. So depending on what you're doing, it could be valid or not, right? Yeah. Right, yep. You use the script manager for compression and consolidation? Up till now, we've been using Ajax Minifier with okay. uh, MS Build. And so we, I like to do it at build time rather than run time. Yep. So I just have it built. I pull the version number from my back end assembly so I know how it matches, and then we deploy it so that our CDN can use it. So. Yeah, and there's many things you want. And you use a query string extension for, for versioning? Uh, I just actually embed it into the name. Okay. So yeah, that version's part of the JavaScript. And uh, by the way, I, did, I deployed that to the CDN. And the, the week I did that, my CDN had a hiccup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that afternoon, I learned how to do fallbacks. So we actually have it set up to pull from the CDN, but if it isn't there, it'll actually fall back and serve from my server. So we kind of get the best of both. Nice. By the way, that feature is going to be built in to ASP.NET 5. Awesome. Yes. I'm, I'm, I think a lot of folks, probably listening to the show and in general, just don't use CDNs because they think Akamai and they think hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's just not true anymore. No, not, not anymore. I mean, we were an Akamai customer for a long time, and it's so competitive in that space. Yes. We just went through another rev a few months ago, and it's amazing uh, how low you can get CDNs today and yeah, how much benefit they a month. Yeah. I mean, you know, literally our uh, measurements when we did it, uh, we cut half our bandwidth. And this is just when we just did our images. Right. We cut our bandwidth in half, and we got 25% faster by using CDNs. Right. Like I said, they're dirt cheap today. So. Absolutely. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now? Well, it must be that happy time again. We're in Nebraska, so I'm going to do my best Marlon Perkins. Uh-oh. As we watch Jim wrestle a 50-foot web forms-based anaconda, <laughs> I sip my martini from the comfort of the Jeep, which runs on ASP.NET 5. <laughs> it's a bunch of blank stares from everyone under 40 yeah, right now. you're just old, dude. That was from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> which was a show that was on when I was very small. Actually, uh, it's time to give away a... I can't believe I did that. Uh, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I one remember. One guy is laughing. There was always one guy down there fighing with the snake and the other yeah, guy's Jim. In, the, in, in the truck talking about right, it. Right, that's right. Wow, I got him right around the neck. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> Uh, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. Awesome, dude. So who's our winner? Today's winner is Prashant Kamath. Congratulations, Prashant. And Prashant just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing right here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you've got to sign up to win. And I'd like to ask our guests briefly... <laughs> There's four of them. There Although Mads just did this like a month ago. Right. 
Well, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, guys, what would you buy? Lee? Lee? Oh, I'd, I'd buy a new MacBook. <laughs> <laughs> Not an unusual that answer. Pretty much take, yeah. take care of the whole 5000 There's really. no difficulty spending $5,000 with Apple. They are very good at taking your money. Yep. Mads, are. any updates to your last one? No, I'll, I'll still wait for the HoloLens. You still want your HoloLens. I hope it's not five grand. I hope you can buy <laughs> ten of them. Yeah, me yes, too. I hope so too. Yeah. Josh? Uh, 15-inch MacBook Pro with Retina display and two Thunderbolt. The 5K displays. screen? All right. You want the 5K screen, don't no, you? No, I don't want the 5K screen. No? No, I can't handle 5K at this point. My <laughs> eyes might start bleeding. I can't see anything. More <laughs> Apple hardware. Robert, elevate this conversation. Uh, Lenovo X1 Carbon. So I have ah, one. Yes. I actually have been a Lenovo guy forever. And I had the ThinkPads, and I finally got a Carbon. And I was walking around in London with my backpack for a conference, and I was freaking out every, like, 10 minutes, I'd feel like I lost my laptop. And I'd too light. Like so. Yeah, wow. too light. So I just want newer, faster version of that. Can you actually, I've, I've looked at that machine, because it is beautiful. I don't know if you can actually spend five grand on it. It's no, a, I'll just take the rest for something. Yeah, you'll do something. <laughs> Buy two. <laughs> Buy two, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, it fully, like, you can build a Delosaurus for about five grand. And the, and the W530, the Lenovo, Fully loaded with a couple of like 512 gig SSDs will get you there too. That carbon doesn't. That get carbon the room. will be like maybe two. Yeah, two. That's it's like this this Samsung, right? These Ultra books are just they, you can't spend much more than two on them. Well, you can buy yourself a heck of a desk, you know, to put it on. <laughs> yeah, because it's so light. <laughs> in a, All right, in a villain chair. That that was surprisingly quick for four. Yeah. Thank you guys, because like <laughs> you know, we could go on for a long time on spending money on gadgets. That's for sure. Mads, uh, what kind of, what kind of, I know this is probably a loaded question, but what kind of research do you guys do into, um, obviously, you know, the, it may have been a revelation for people when they say, oh, well, Microsoft knows when I'm writing code and what, what language I'm using and what I'm doing. What kind of research do you do into what people are using in ASP.NET and what they struggle with? And like, what kind of information do you glean from that, uh, from that program? Well, well, first of all, the level of information that we get when you check the box if you want to help improve Visual Studio, it's not that detailed, right? We don't okay. know what you write. Um, there's a few points that we measure, like when you, I'm glad you create a new point. project, what type of project is that? Is that a console app in VB, for instance, right? That's, that's sort of the level of stuff we know. Um, no, for, for say, repeat the question, please. Yeah, so what kind of information do you, do you glean to do research into what to write next for ASP.NET? Yeah, so for new features, and, and so we do a lot of things to figure out, like, what, what's the pain points? First of all, we hear a lot of it. So, um, so my team and the ASP.NET runtime team, so both the tooling and the runtime side of, of what ASP.NET is, uh, we do a lot of conferencing. We do a lot of meeting people, a lot of user groups, a lot of, uh, like, online engagement, whether it be, like, the YouTube community updates and, and all that sort of stuff. So we, we do get a lot of feedback constantly. Like, it's not like we get two pieces of feedback per week. We probably get thousands of pieces of feedback per week. Right. And so that helps us a lot. And you actually have people that go through all that stuff, sort it out, figure I'm out. I'm one of them, yep. Really? Oh, we, we all do that, yeah, yeah. We Actually, we, we triage all that information coming in exactly the same way as if our uh, test team has found a bug and we need to figure out, okay, are we going to do that and fix it in this sprint? Are we going to wait till the next one or, you know, won't fix or, you know, whatever, by design. Yeah. Um, we, we triage these community feedback issues in the exact same way. So they come in in the same list and we don't, we don't treat it any differently. So we, we're exposed to a lot. So we know a lot of the pain points. Um, most of the team is actually web developers. Right. Like the team's building ASP.NET and building the web tools. Um, they're either dev web developers or they have been uh, 
recently. And so a lot of it is also, we kind of knows, we know a lot of things, right? Uh, but most of it is um, feedback. So keep it coming, right? It's really important. And it's, it's actually from everyone, right? It's not just from people who listen to .NET Rocks, right? right. Uh, it's from, uh, from everyone else. Like it's, it really is like a very broad set of uh, users and customers that provide us feedback. It must just take a lot of effort and time to go through those and sort out, oh, this guy just, you know, just needs this particular piece of information and he's fine and that one's whining and you know, this one is legitimate. And, yeah, yeah, how much of these things are bugs and how many are PSS calls really? Um, well, so, so they're, it's probably 50-50. Yeah. Huh. It's probably 50-50. A lot of the bugs are duplicates, of course, right? Right. So if there, if there is one issue, I mean, 200 people are going to report that issue. Yeah, or that's not a bad thing either. It helps yeah. you wait it. Or does it? Uh, it does. We, so, when, so the bug comes in. So if you report a bug on connect.microsoft.com for like some Visual Studio feature, uh, other people can go in there and, and vote for that. And so we actually, and we get that bug into our TFS system. So when a bug arrives at, at my desk in TFS, it says, okay, this has this many votes. Or if it's something that goes wrong, let's say there is a, a crash, a Visual Studio crashed for some reason, some edge case or web essentials or whatever. Uh, we get notified about that crash and we'll, we know how many crashes there were just for the people who click the help improve Visual Studio checkbox, right? Right. Because um, the so other thing it does besides creating the project is when there's a major crash, you yes. does report. That's the whole Dr. Yes. Watson so it's thing. So it's, it's a Watson thing, exactly. But we also have what we call perf Watson, and that is even if there's no crash, but sometimes we see Visual Studios hanging. Right. Wide screen of death. Yeah. I don't know if you have ever seen that before, but it no. does happen. And then uh, we, get, we get like those numbers and say, okay, there's a... This particular situation in this code path, there is a hang. Nothing crashed, but you know it's beyond the, the threshold that we say that is uh, okay. Whatever, and I don't know what that number is, but um, so we get that in as well. So it, you really help improving by checking that checkbox. You really do. My question is, how do you f how do you f just Richard was talking about waiting, but how do you get rid of things like the two billion people who? reported the all caps menu items in Visual Studio as a bug. Well, we fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> Best way to get rid of it, huh? <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, if you have 2 million people or 20,000 or however many it was, it was a lot. Um, well, that, you know, it's pretty loud and clear. If we don't fix it, then, you know, we shouldn't have the job that we have, right? So, Is the noise actually dying down? Like, do you feel like you're getting fewer and fewer items reported? Where, where, where is that? Yeah, so we see, especially in, in um, 2015, we see a lot less serious bugs coming in. Mm -hmm. um, it seems that um, what we get in is either they're known bugs or they're like edge cases, but we, see, we don't see the crashes much more. Um, and that's, that's just really good. A lot, of, a lot of the things coming in, a lot of the bugs coming in has been like around, if, we, if we're talking about the web stuff, has been, oh, I'm using React.js, and if I open a .jsx file in Visual Studio, you know, I just get red squigglies and error list, and I can't do anything. Right. And is that a bug? Well, for us, it's a missing feature. We don't support that file format, basically, right? Right. But for the user, it's a bug. I totally yeah. get that. And so... But we're fixing that. It seems like where we were five years ago, so I was showing a slide of how the web tooling has been um, progressing over the last five versions of Visual Studio. And we can actually see we have a lot more features now than we had just five years ago. So now, instead of being reactive, 
Uh, back then, we were very reactive, like, oh, these other products now have this feature. We should also have it, right? We went from that to, okay, let's define new and, some new and better ways of doing it because we're now at a point where we're, in many situations, much further ahead than any competing IDE or editor out there. So, so that has completely changed. Uh, not everywhere, not for everything, but for a lot of things. How has um, open sourcing a lot of these pieces of the Microsoft stack, like Prism, um, we just learned about, I just learned about this morning. Um, how, do you, how does that affect how much triage you have to do, offloading that to someone else? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So all the GitHub repositories that we now have, we have the issue trackers on, on GitHub. So that means that we now have two places for issues. Uh, the official place for reporting issues on ASP.NET, for instance, right now is on GitHub. That is the official place. Everyone is invited. It's not a lockdown private thing. Everyone can report issues and comment on new design things and, and you know, uh, get their voice heard there, send pull requests and so on. Um, but there's also our internal TFS version of the issue trackers of everything. So we kind of, we kind of see a duplication now where we have um, reports, uh, or bug reports being reported in both um, systems. And so we have, to, we have to do a little bit more work there to coordinate that. But um, I mean, all the design discussions, everything like, is now on GitHub for, for a lot of things. So it's made your job harder and not easier? Well, not my job particularly, <laughs> because the Visual Studio itself, which is where I do my work, is not open source yet, right? Okay. Yet. Yeah. And what about the cross-platforminess of uh, ASP.NET and .NET? Can you, can you tell us about that if, for those who haven't been paying attention lately? I can. So this is very exciting that ASP.NET 5 runs cross-plat, Ubuntu, Mac, Windows, which is really cool. You don't need IIS anymore, just like you didn't need IIS to serve web API. Uh, you could be self-hosting or you could use whatever web server you want. And that's really cool because that means for the first time you can actually sit in your, you know, using your $5,000 MacBook <laughs> and, you know, you can, you can build your ASP.NET website, you can uh, run it, you can test it, you can do everything you can in, in Sublime or WebStorm or whatever your weapon of choice is. And you can work on that same project hosted on GitHub, for instance, and have a team member sitting in Visual Studio on Windows and you can work on the exact same project. Um, the tools are going to be different, so I was showing like, how we integrate in Visual Studio with Grunt and Gulp and Bower and make that more of a, uh, a sort of a nicer workflow maybe than, than if you didn't have Visual Studio. But that doesn't matter. It's under, under the covers. At the end of the day, it's the exact same things we're doing. It's the exact same code we're writing, and, uh, and that, that's awesome. Now, if we could just get Apple on board to do the same thing, that would be awesome. Yes. <laughs> I'm always stunned when, it, when we're looking at a situation where Microsoft has done the leading edge thing and it's the other companies now that aren't able to keep up or unwilling to keep up. And uh, yeah, looking at you, Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I, wanted to, I, I was going to direct this at Josh, but it's certainly any of the panel can answer this. Just thinking from a design perspective, is trying to decide if Visual Studio is really complete. Can we really design pages from scratch? And I'm thinking in the terms of CSS and the real design elements of a page, or do you go to another tool? Like, What's your tool suite for building a great looking site look like today? Or are you still just using text editors? So my designers all use um, Illustrator and Photoshop. Yep. And so um, to convert those PSDs or AI files to HTML and CSS, we internally, because we all run Macs all day, right. um, we use WebStorm to build HTML and CSS. Um, 
I, I was really hoping that sometime today we'd hear an announcement that, that there's a wor they're working on cross-platform Visual Studio, but, but... That would be interesting, wouldn't it? It would be. <laughs> it would be wonderful speculate. for the news to break here at Nebraska Code if that, that was happening. <laughs> um, One thing I've wor learned talking to Mads over the years, he will tell you exactly what he's allowed to tell you. <laughs> nothing more. Really nothing My name more. is not Scott, so I can't <laughs> yeah. make an announcement. <laughs> he actually has a job he has to be worried about. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But... Uh, it, it, we for other tools, you know, we use Grunt and uh, and SAS, and uh, we we use ES6 transpiled to JavaScript for um, writing our JavaScript. And um, it, it's been a couple of years since I've used Visual Studio, but the the one thing that I've always noticed watching people working in it full time is that it's just as full. The newer versions are just as good at doing front end code as anything else that you use, either it be Sublime Text or WebStorm mm, or whatever. Right. It, it, the only difference is, is that when you're working on a Mac, you can't use it. Right. Any other opinions, approaches, or tool sets for how you build your pages? I found Sublime Text to be super lightweight. Um, probably my biggest problem with Visual Studio, and I th still think Visual Studio is probably the most compl feature-complete IDE that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, but. I tend to, even when I'm writing code, use Visual Studio like a text editor. Right. So I've got all the drawers and everything all minim minimized and out of my way. You want as much code window as possible. Yeah. And right. so I find myself, really, the only thing I need is, what are my list of files and here's my text? And so since I'm using Visual Studio anyway, um, it's about like using TFS for source control. Right. Because, you know, you just bought the Taj Mahal for a place to get out of the rain. Yeah. So using Visual Studio just as a text editor seems like overkill for me. Sure. So, Robert, any other viewpoints? You guys are still doing web forms, so no design for you. Yeah, well, we have <laughs> other people primarily do the design, so they use Photoshop. And then yeah. we're usually having other people that are doing, we're starting using SAS more. So we're having other people create the SAS and HTML more of what my task is personally is integrating that into the back end and putting it into the site. And I use Visual Studio exclusively for that. So. Right. It does feel to me like, and I hear this theme fairly often, that Visual Studio is the back-end development tool and lightweight front-end stuff, but as soon as I have a design team, they're coming at it from different sources. I completely disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Visual Studio for front-end, like in the last couple of years, the last couple of iterations of Visual Studio, we've seen a lot of love for front-end. And... Um, like well beyond as well for some cases, a lot of cases actually what we see in other, uh, in other environments like other IDEs. Uh, it's difficult to compare to a text editor because a text editor is you know, not an IDE. Right. And so when we, when we think about having like project management and so on, that's, that sort of sit on top of being a text editor because I actually do agree with you, Lee, that I do most of my stuff is just, it's just a glorified text editor. But then there's all the extra things you get. Like you get the task runner explorer, you get the Bauer IntelliSense, the NPM, uh, you get the NuGet integration, you get IntelliSense that's way better than any other place. And if you don't need any of that, if it's okay, you just get sort of a dumbed-down statement completion, which a lot of the text editors have, then that's fine. But if you want more precise and more accurate, more fast uh, IntelliSense and code completion and so on, Visual Studio sort of is the place to go. And I think that has changed in the last two versions. Like 2012 was the first one, Visual Studio 2012, where we saw that. 2013, definitely, and now with 2015, a huge leap forward again. Um, I think there is no competition anymore. If you want things that are up beyond just basic statement completion and text editing, Visual Studio is number one. 
Yeah, and I like Mads and his work on Web Essentials. So Web Essentials adds a lot of the missing pieces and gets a lot of the cutting edge stuff for us. So just I was telling him before this, I was doing a talk on that. And um, it, a lot of places it's so seamless. I don't know if it's Essentials or if it's Visual Studio, but the simple things like color swatches and those other things, the browser support, I can hover and see kind of the can I use idea right within the editor. So I know as I'm typing, this is going to be supported by the browsers I need. That's pretty powerful for me. Well, there's a discussion here to be had about how do we get more designers using Studio for these things? Like, is this a style of work more than it is actual resources available? Well, one of the things that I'd, we've been talking about is um, front-end development has kind of, at least over the last year, kind of crossed over this threshold into not being a designer-only area, mm -hmm. right? It's actually been legitimized as a coder's place, right? So front end is now a programmer's place to be rather than just the back end. It used to be a lot of the developers, you go to a conference and 99% of them that I would talk to say, yeah, I write in the back end and my designers make it pretty. Right. Right. And now it's, oh no, I work exclusively in the front end and I write code all day. Yep. Yeah, you see, you see job postings for front end engineer all of a sudden. Nice. <laughs> Where was that five years ago? That's right, yeah. Guys, that's about all the time we have, but I'd like to uh, ask everybody to give the big round of applause to our panel. And we'll see you next time on Net Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.